Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to episode 43 of the ClapperCast. It is March 2nd, 2020, and I am Sean. I'll be your host this week. To kick us off, I'm admittedly still running off the high of an exciting Edmonton Oilers victory, as they've just finished throttling the Nashville Predators in an 8-3 victory. Um, it was a back-and-forth game through the first two periods, entering the third at 3-3, but uh, in the span of about six or seven minutes, Edmonton scored five goals. And uh, what a night for Leon Dreisaitl, who had four goals and an assist. Uh, Connor McDavid had a low-key five-point night as well. But the key from that game was the reuniting of the Leon Dreisaitl, Ryan Nugent-Hopkins, and Kyler Yamamoto line. Uh, Yamamoto had missed a few games with an ankle injury, but uh, he returned and the three of them rekindled their chemistry immediately. And it's amazing to watch these three play and see what they do with the puck. And what these three do so, so much better than many other lines is all the little things that keep the play alive. And I'm thinking specifically of Leon Dreisaitl's second goal, where Kyler Yamamoto made an amazing little chip play off the boards to Ryan Nugent Hopkins charging in down the wing, who passed it over to Dreisaitl and scored off of that. A lot of those little offensive plays, most lines don't find the ability to make them, but these three keep doing that, and it's helping them really propel the Oilers and give them two legitimate scoring threats, and one that's going to cause real issues for the opposition as they try and figure out which line they need to match their best defensive players against. When you've got Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid both running highly offensive lines in, on their own. And it'll be interesting over the rest of the season and into the playoffs, should the Oilers make it, just how teams are going to try and match up their players against these two lines. Because in the past, you've had Connor McDavid and Dreisaitl in the same line, which has been countered by obviously having the best defensive players play against that line. When they're on different lines, you kind of have to see who's doing what. And some teams may not have two legitimate lines of defensive players that they can match against individually against McDavid and Dreisaitl. And it gives the Oilers a chance to have one of these two elite offensive players playing against a less than ideal matchup for an entire game. Also throughout this game, um, us Oilers fans got the chance to see Ryan Smith give an intermission interview. Um, he was a huge part of being a hockey fan for me growing up personally. One of my favorite players through... The entire time he was in Edmonton, the first the first stretch, and even even after he had gotten traded away, still one of my favorite players around the league, just in terms for of his play style. He was one of those guys who played with his heart on his sleeve every single game, gave it his all, and he just his work ethic was just enduring, and uh, he became just a fan favorite around Edmonton and even around Canadian hockey. Is he earned the nickname Captain Canada for his performances in uh, the World Hockey Championships every spring. It's always great to see him back in anything Oilers related just for the to bring back the nostalgia and the memories of watching him uh, tip in a whole bunch of random goals and let off a random slap shot two feet in off the blue line that somehow goes in sometimes. And uh, that was kind of something that made my made my day and uh, apparently motivated the team is after that interview, they went and really destroyed Nashville, honestly. <laughs> but uh, one thing I wanted to mention about Ryan Smith is through a lot of these years, the Oilers had been struggling. They never really had a player who did what Ryan Smith did in terms of in terms of what I had been mentioning before with his work ethic and how he played. They never really had that type of player, and you could kind of you could see it on the ice with the, with the teams that were playing. And one thing that I noticed through this Oilers roster this season is they kind of have someone or a couple of players who embrace some of the same qualities in different ways, I might add, but they have the same qualities of that giving it your all every single shift and playing engaged physical hockey. The Oilers this season have little, like two players, um, in my opinion, who 
kind of embrace some of these same qualities that Ryan Smith brought to the to the Oilers for so many years, and then being Josh Archibald and Kyler Yamamoto. Um, Josh Archibald plays an insanely engaged physical game that you can tell he's giving it his all every single time he steps on the ice. It's one of the main qualities that made Ryan Smith such a fan favorite amongst Oilers fans for all those years. And he kind of embraces that and has succeeded. He's done really, really well. And uh, the other one, Kyler Yamamoto, who is apparently the net front presence the Oilers have needed for so long with his shiftiness and his ability to just get his hands on the puck uh, in, in gritty areas, that the team had been missing those types of players for so long, and now that they have them again, they're starting to do a bit better. What these players do is help give a sense of uh, the intangible qualities that some players have that every team needs, but it's hard to really identify and measure what they are, which I just found to be interesting. And it's, it's good to see on the ice as well, as through, through some of the worst years in Edmonton, you always had the sense that some players were kind of floating around on the ice. They maybe weren't as engaged as they had been or could be. And it was always hard to see when those types of guys would still end up getting starts game in, game out, and other players. Um, one of the notable ones through those years was Andrew Cogliano, who had a similar play style. You know, he ended up getting traded. He was one of the few guys on some of those teams that you had that sense of work ethic, of grittiness, of engagement. And I think it's important moving forward that um, the Oilers retain some of these guys for the long term. And Josh Archibald was a bit of a random free agent signing over the last summer. So I hope that moving into next season that Archibald gets another contract with Edmonton because he's shown his ability to play anywhere in the lineup. He can stick it out on McDavid's line just well, just as well as he can down on the third and fourth lines. He's also an excellent penalty killer, which is something the Oilers had desperately needed for years. And he's his contributions to this team over the last seven, eight months of the season here have really been not unnoticed. He's been much better than expected. Moving into a bit of an in this day in hockey history, this past week we hit the 10-year anniversary of the Golden Goal, where Sidney Crosby scored the overtime winner against the United States in the gold medal game of the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Now, this this goal has always just been a fantastic story, something that you couldn't write a better outcome for. Basically, like Canada's golden child, you know, the Sid the Kid, the next one, like Canadian generational hockey star getting such a significant goal on home ice against a major, major rival. And it's one of those, like, where were you moments in Canadian hockey history that for, for a lot of hockey fans around my age in 20s, 30s, it's probably the goal that we remember the most with, especially with the amount of people who tuned in for that game. Like, most of Canada saw parts of it. All of Canada probably was following the game and heard about the goal pretty quickly after it happened. One of my favorite little stories that came out of that, uh, Crosby did an interview with Elliot Friedman where they kind of watched the uh, watched the goal and talked about the situation a little bit, is that Crosby had been, had been struggling a little bit on the ice throughout the tournaments, but Jerome McGinley kept telling Sydney throughout the whole thing that you're going to get a big one, don't worry. It, I thought, first of all, like that's really cool leadership from another all-timer Canadian, that Jerome McGinley, this all-around great guy, great hockey player, spent some amazing years in, down in Calgary, was guiding Canada's next great hockey star through this important tournament. And uh, ultimately, it was Jerome McGinley that ended up feeding Crosby the puck for the goal. I just found that story to be a really humanizing moment that uh, he had this other leader leading him through this tournament and giving him the opportunity to score 
probably the biggest goal in his career and quite possibly the biggest goal of many hockey's fans viewing experiences. In, uh, in another heartwarming and nice story from this past week, um, Bobby Ryan, who had taken most of the season away from hockey, as we later learned, he was participating in the NHL Player Assistance Program to help with some ongoing struggles with alcohol abuse. Uh, he made his return to the Senators lineup this past week. And uh, in, his, in his first home game back, Bobby scored a hat-trick and he also got in a fight. The greatest moment from this whole game is this scene of Bobby Ryan on the bench with the crowd chanting his name in the background. And it's just one of those moments that sends chills down your spine and like not in a fearful way or anything, just that moment of intense emotion that you can you can just feel what that means to him to come back to have such an important game in front of his hometown fan, or in front of his home fans and to have them respond in the way that they did. It's uh, I've always said that one of the coolest moments in hockey is when you've got the entire arena chanting a single player's name in the midst of one of those historic nights, and this one was no different. So I'm extremely happy for Bobby Ryan and super glad to see him back with his team and doing seemingly doing well, and we wish him the best in the next stages of his recovery. One of the more intriguing stories of the season has been the Calder Trophy race, with uh, Quinn Hughes of the Vancouver Canucks and Kale McCarr of the Colorado Avalanche are basically the same player, honestly. They're both the same type of offensively talented defenseman, and they're both rookies, they're both competing for the Calder, and it's, I'm really interested, I'm really following the story to see which one of them ends up getting it. Um, Quinn Hughes currently sitting at 0.8 points per game, Kale McCarr at 0.84. Quinn Hughes gets 21.45 of ice time per game. Makar gets 21 minutes of ice time. Quinn Hughes has 27 even strength points. Makar has 30. Quinn Hughes has 24 power play points, and Makar has 17. Like, the, the numbers don't get much closer than that for two different players on different teams. So it's basically down to those two players. We're seeing we're seeing lately a bit of a uh, late push by Quinn Hughes as he's been leading not just rookie defensemen, but the NHL defenseman scoring race since the All-Star game. He's got 17 points in the last 16 games. Um, I personally lean Kale McCarr for it, even though he did miss a bit of time. He didn't miss much, and he's actually currently sitting out today's game. Uh, he's day-to-day -day right now with another injury. But he has slightly higher offensive numbers, and I think he has a slightly better, well-rounded game than Quinn Hughes does this season. But Quinn Hughes has been so, so good since the All-Star game that he might have a little bit more sway with the voters just due to the recency bias thing if he ends the season stronger or if Kale McCarr is hurt. Now, the other determining factor in the Calder trophies we've seen in the past, I'm going to point out Ryan Nugent Hopkins again, is that... Missing games hurts your chances at winning the Calder Trophy. The uh, the race I'm talking about with Ryan Nugent Hopkins is between him and Gabriel Landeskog back in the back in the 2011-2012 season, where Nugent Hopkins and Gabriel Landeskog both finished the season with 52 points, but. Nugent Hopkins missed some games, and ultimately Landis Cog won the trophy. And what we learned after the fact is that games played was actually a determining factor in some voters' decisions. So Kale McCarr might lose some votes for missing more games than Quinn Hughes has this season, which would give Quinn Hughes the edge. Now, I think it's well-deserved either way this trophy goes. They've both been incredible rookie defensemen, and both of them exemplify the type of modern-day defensemen that is going to succeed in this league. They have the offensive capabilities to be top-tier defensemen in the NHL. Defensively, they might not be the most sound yet. That comes in time, as does with any player, specifically defensemen. 
And in the meantime, they can easily have teammates cover them or teams that just kind of eat their mistakes and weigh the weigh the pros and cons of having them on the ice or just play them situationally like Hughes and McCarr have been this season where they mostly get offensive zone starts and power play time. But what you can't teach a lot of younger defensemen is the offensive talents that they have. So the fact that they have them already is going to mean they are well, well set to be top tier defensemen in the league for years to come. Also in the Calder Trophy race, there's... Dominic Kubelik, who has pushed to be probably, in my opinion, the clear-cut third at this point. Um, he will get some consideration just because of how quickly he's caught up to Hughes and McCarr in the rookie scoring race. Um, he looks to be well on his way to a 30-goal season in his rookie year. He's just at 29 right now and still has like 15, 16 games left, so he should hit that. But I don't think he's been good enough for long enough this season to fully win the award. Um, similar situation with Victor Olofsson who's been an insanely talented scorer, situational scorer for the Buffalo Sabres, but he's missed quite a bit of time with a variety of injuries, pretty much taking him out of consideration, in my opinion. A bit of a long shot for a serious look, but um, he's still kind of worth mentioning because of how impressive he's been at times, is Columbus's Elvis Merzlikens. Now, through December, January, and part of February, um, Elvis was leaned on heavily by the Columbus Blue Jackets, this was during an insanely hot stretch by the team, but it was also in large part due to his performances on the ice, where he was putting up like a 950 save percentage. He had five shutouts in like eight games or something crazy. And those are just numbers that are insanely impressive for a rookie goalie. He won't get a strong look for the award. It's especially difficult for goalies to win the Calder Trophy, as we saw last season with Jordan Binnington, as the precedent for goalies winning the Calder Trophy has been set at around 50 to 55 games in the past, which Elvis hasn't hit, he probably won't hit. But he's one of those rookies that's been doing well enough that it's worth talking about anyways. Moving into some other stories from around the league, uh, last... Last week's episode, we recapped the NHL trade deadline. Now, it was one of the busiest deadlines in NHL history. There are something like 31, 32 players moving on deadline day. That's not including all the trades made in the in the weeks leading up to it. And there's been a handful of players whose performances have stood out for one way or another. And I want to start off here with uh, Jean-Gabriel Pajot. I was interested in following Pajot because he'd had such a breakout season in Ottawa this year. And I was interested to know whether or not he'd be able to keep that up and still produce at a similar level in his new team. And it turns out, so far, I mean, it's only been three games, but he's got two goals in those three games, and he's helping out big time on face-offs with the Islanders. That he's sitting at 70.5% on a team that's 19th with a 49.6% face-off percentage so far this year. The nice thing about Pajot is that if he's not scoring, he will do other things, such as those face-offs. But he's also going to be a valuable power play guy. He's going to be able to slot it on the penalty kill, and he can move up and down the lineup wherever needed. So even if he does happen to have a bit of a regression in his offensive production, there's enough options and versatility in the play style that Pajot will still find use no matter what. Next, I want to bring up the performance of Alec Martinez again. So he got off to a really, really hot offensive start. He's now sitting at six points in six games with the Vegas Golden Knights. He's been immediately handed a big role on the team's defense. He's averaging about 20 minutes per game right now. He's slotted in on, on the second pair with uh, Shea Theodore. And watching him in a game versus Edmonton earlier this week, him and Theodore had the McDavid matchup for a lot of the night. And they did an absolutely fantastic job at shutting them down. McDavid's line could not get anything going all night. And that was in large part due to Theodore and Martinez reading them and playing them appropriately. And additionally for Martinez, he's never been a guy who's terribly offensive. 
he had one 39-point year and one 31-point season. And I think the Golden Knights are extremely happy with how he's jumped in and contributed offensively. Even if he's not scoring a whole lot, he's still shooting and keeping plays alive, and he's helping with their transition game. And for a team that relies so strongly on that quick transition and quick offense attack, having Martinez's contributions in that regard are really going to help them maintain competitiveness in the very tight Pacific Division. Even though the Golden Knights are sitting in the lead in the division right now, they're two points ahead of the Oilers, who are three or four points ahead of the Flames right now. So they're going to need every little bit of help they can get. Next on the list, I was quite critical of the Andreas Athanasiou trade last week, and so far my tune has not changed. I wasn't a huge fan of giving up that much for a player who, by all accounts, is very one-dimensional. He's fast, and that's about it. He's had one good season in Detroit. Sure, the team over there kind of sucks. Well, kind of is putting it nicely. But he had one 30-goal year, and after that, he's back down to his normal 20-30 point pace. And so far in Edmonton, eh, not great. Him, McDavid, and Tyler Ennis were paired together as a line immediately. The line was pretty good in the first game that they played together, but uh, since then, it's been kind of downhill the second game he ended up getting hurt in the second and missed most of the third and in the third game they played he by he was demoted to the third line by the third period because the line was not gelling at all now it does take a few games to build up some chemistry but Athanasiu had not been able to put anything together beyond being fast and keeping up with McDavid which Watching the games is actually a bit of an issue in itself, as I'm remembering one particular play where McDavid passed it about three or four feet behind Athanasiu because Alex Chason would have been three or four feet behind the play at the time anyways. But even when they had chances, Athanasiu hadn't contributed or finished or made the play that he needed to. And in tonight's game versus Nashville, he made a few okay-ish plays, but he has a bit of a reputation as playing as a selfish player who kind of tries to do everything himself. And one defensive play in particular, he tried to put it up the boards to clear it out of the zone instead of playing it, making the safe play behind the net to a defenseman to take the play to the other side of the ice and get the puck out safer. And it ended up immediately turning into a goal because nobody was covering the guy in front. And it's little plays like that. Um, I would put that up, I would chalk that type of stuff up to inexperience with the system and adjusting to a new team. But... You have to wonder and hope that he's not going to be making those plays on a regular basis. And eventually, he'll figure out that he's got a team now that can somewhat competently back him up. And that he'll be able to take a little bit of the pressure off of himself so that he can get a bit more comfortable with his game and get some confidence going. And maybe at that point, he'll be able to contribute a bit more offensively. Maybe he'll be able to jump back up on McDavid's line. Because, let's be honest, seeing two of the fastest skaters in the NHL on the same line is quite a threat, especially if you can manage to get them out there against a couple of uh, slower defensemen. One other deadline acquisition I'm uh, quite intrigued in how he's fitting in is Brendan Dillon with the Washington Capitals. <laughs> he's turned out to be an excellent physical presence for Washington. He's even gotten into a couple of fights this year. Um, he's the type of player who's going to help them big time down the stretch and helping the Capitals transition into playoff hockey, the more gritty physical side of the game that you you maybe underestimate during the regular season but the importance of it increases so so much in the playoffs that the contributions of brendan Dillon are going to be valued on that capitals blue line um he's fitting in extremely well with the team from the looks of everything that he's completely been onboarded into the capitals uh interesting pregame routines 
And he's even been already sticking up for teammates where uh, Ilya Kovalchuk got slashed pretty hard against Minnesota and Brendan Dillian stepped in and fought Ryan Hartman in place of that. He's fitting in with a team narrative such as the rivalry with the Penguins and that he was fighting Malkin as well. So this is a quite value. I think this is going to be a pretty good addition for the Capitals and he's going to be he's going to be a big part of their uh, playoff push this season through March and April. Especially as the team has been slumping a little bit, they're going to need to kind of rally behind some of this type of play, try to get them into meaningful game mode a bit before the playoffs start so that they don't have to spend the first few games readjusting. So one of the most important trade deadline acquisitions here was uh, Wayne Simmons getting traded to Buffalo. So uh, he was brought in for some experience and to apparently help with the playoff push. So uh, let's see how that's going on here as I'm uh, checking my notes. The Sabres are 0-3 with Wayne Simmons, so he's doing extremely well. They're propelling the Sabres down the standings with his uh, one assist. Um, Jason Bottrell, I think he's still out there playing checkers, and everyone else is playing 4D chess. So good job on that one. I'm still not sure why that move was made in the first place. On the flip side here, Marco Scandella was acquired by the St. Louis Blues to help with their defensive depth, because they really need more of that. And he's been immediately thrusted into a second-pairing role. He's getting just under 20 minutes a game playing with Colton Pareko, and the team is currently 6-0 with him in the lineup. Scandella is not an offensive catalyst by any means. He's only got one assist in those six games, but he's fitting in exceptionally well on that line. He is going to be a huge part of giving the St. Louis Blues two top-tier defensive pairings to help counter, quite potentially, a team like the Oilers that have two extremely good offensive lines. And one last deadline acquisition that I was quite curious to see how he would fit in is uh, Tyler Toffoli with the Vancouver Canucks. Now, the price is a little bit high and confusing at the time because the Canucks are technically in the early-ish stages of a rebuild, but they're in a playoff push, so they were trading prospects and picks away for pieces. But Tyler Toffoli was kind of exactly what the Canucks needed, and so far he's been what they expected as well as he's got six points in six games with four goals so far. Only time will tell if this trade works out long term, especially if Toffoli re-signs with the Canucks this summer. But with all the injuries that the Canucks have been dealing with this season, between Besser, Furland, uh, Josh Levo, all missing significant time on their forward group, they really, really needed someone like Toffoli to help them keep pace with all of the playoff implications that every single game is having in the Pacific Division. So it's good to see that this trade so far has been working out for the Canucks. So that wraps things up for this week here on ClapperCast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, make sure to spread the word around with your family and friends to help us grow our footprint in the hockey world. To keep up to date with the latest content, you can follow us on Instagram at ClapperCastMedia or on Twitter at ClapperCast. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with more hockey talk.